0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another all-new Exes for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the many women of Marvel through their many monthly adventures. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And for this very special Marvel Fanfare Friday, I needed some extra help to handle all of the awesome women of this episode. So I have with me today
1: Nathan. Oh, wait, I thought I was Mr. Horse. Wait, no, I'm Nathan. You can find me on <laughs> at Twitter at Dazzler AOA and Instagram, too, but Twitter and Instagram at Dazzler AOA. And I'm Riding Mr. Horse right now. Anyway, man,
0: ever since the day (laughs) where Arturo was like, Is the horse's name really Mr. Horse? And I'm like, Yes. And he was like, (laughs) I love that for you. And I'm like, Thank you. I've been so excited for us to get around to talking about Valkyrie Volume 2. And just there was no better day than today on this Marvel Fanfare Friday, when we're here to celebrate the amazing women of Marvel with the incredible Women of Marvel special. I wish they would just slap a voices on it. How do you feel about the fact that they don't put Marvel voices on the Women of Marvel issue? You
1: know, the only thing I don't like about it is it makes it harder to find a Marvel Unlimited. (laughs) Yeah, like
0: that's a thing for me. (laughs) Like I just did a bunch of research. And like, if you happen to look up A plus X, you'd be amazed how many different ways you've got to like creatively spell it.
1: You know, it had a good rogue Natasha story. That was the only good thing I remember about it. Ma'am. There was a dupe Iron Fist
0: story. I thought that was That's kind of amazing. That's for you. That's like yeah,
1: comics for you, Nico.
0: Well, and then the issue after it had Captain America Quentin Quire. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it serviced a really weird demographic. <laughs> but we are here today to talk about some books that serve a much more central demographic and that's women of marvel and later on we're also going to be taking a look at electra black white and blood story number three split which sees longtime daredevil writer and nesenti return to the series couldn't be more excited And we're also going to do our trade waiting segment covering Valkyrie Volume 2, and we're going to throw in a little extra coverage of the Runa story from the Marvel Voices special that came out earlier this year. Not that Raven and Andre didn't do a phenomenal job talking about that story, but there's something about just wanting to, like, not miss a single Valkyrie story on this show. I just want to make sure that we cover it. I've been on
1: every runa I cover so...
0: Exactly! So, let's kick things off with how we feel about the current state of Valkyrie. She is popping up in Avengers. There's some connections to Avengers Forever and uh, the King Thor stuff, but, you know, well, that's not exactly Jane, that's still a bit more of the Jason Aaron Thor mythos, but, you know, the big one, the one that I feel like there's no way to get around, Jane recently popped up in the page of X deaths of Wolverine. And I would love to get a little bit more on your thoughts on the inclusion of Jane, the all-weapon, and just what that meant to you seeing it in X deaths
1: Me and Stevie together. So, like, when we first read it, like, we were like, is it Jane? Because, like, the first page you, like, don't know exactly who it is. And I'm like, is it Jane? I'm like, is that Jane? And I'm like, that's fucking Jane! So, like, I was so excited to, like, see her in that issue one and her slight inclusion in issue two, which was amazing. I was like, hell yeah! And I was like, it makes total sense. She obviously Obviously knows about the pods growing in Krakoa because of the arc we're about to cover I did a happy dance and it was really kind of cute but it was really kind of sad at the same time too
0: I get it I get it especially now that X deaths is finished and we try not to talk about a book the week it comes out for the sake of our audience we know that not everybody has a chance to get to that shop that first day or reads digital and downloads their books at 4 a.m. and so (laughs) that's not everybody's life but to say that X deaths didn't you know further Jane's story that she really really just appeared in the pages of this title means so much because like i feel sometimes when we started covering valkyries on this show in the pages of king and black return of the valkyries the numbers one through four at the beginning of 2021 you know nathan i felt like maybe we were fighting an uphill battle like i feel like the world wasn't ready for jane the way we were ready for her
1: agreed agreed i mean i I can't lie like i love jane i came to that series for danny but i i think i left for jane and runa because i was like holy fuck like this combination of these two beautiful ladies is amazing hildegard in that series was amazing and like i I don't know why jane like can't keep a solo series going because the quality that they've been throwing the character is amazing like none of these stories have been small stories none of these stories have been stories that were like oh okay cool you know that could be somebody else's filling in they're all very specifically tailored to her and they're all these huge amazingly well done well drawn well colored stories that i'm just like come on this needs to pick up
0: and you know i've really been trying to think on why that keeps happening and i did a little bit of like putting my my brain thinky hat on and tried to dig deep (laughs) and see if i couldn't maybe source out a little bit of what was happening and i wonder if some of it has to do with the method of delivery on Jane and her time as Thor. Now, early on God of Thunder has very little to do with Jane. That first 25 issues plus the original Sin Tie-in, you're not getting a whole lot of Jane Foster in there. Wait. It isn't until the title relaunches with the 8-issue series plus that amazing annual with the CM Punk story, you know, that <laughs> yeah. We, yeah, it's like so I fucking love that annual. That we really get uh, a bit more of who Jane is. Of course, her time as the Mighty Thor for a glorious 23 issues before it renumbers at 700, ties in with the Unworthy Thor, number 1 through 5, featuring everybody's favorite misanthropic Odinson. The Mighty Thor at the Gates of Valhalla is a pretty necessary piece of Jane canon that helps transition us over into the War of the Realms, where Jane plays a pivotal and incredible role in some unforgettable scenes. It's after the events of War of the Realms and War of the Realms Omega, where things become clear that Jane is going to begin a path as the Valkyrie. This of of course kind of weaves in and out of the events of Avengers and Thor and ultimately it doesn't really kind of come due again until Jane launches Valkyrie which she has for 10 issues. Now, okay, help me out here. Nathan, do you remember in our coverage of Valkyrie's volume 1
1: that I'm like I thought this was 12 issues. I th- I'm positive that you said that. Yes, 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 yeah.
0: It's because issues 11 and 12 were solicited and then canceled due to no. the pandemic.
1: And you know, I remember when the shops opened back up and we started getting- physical copies again. The last few issues of Valkyrie was digital only for those issues. So I had to wait till they were on MU because I was like, no, I want to buy physical and digital at the time.
0: Yeah, which is part of why I'm very excited that Marvel is recognizing that, especially with the film coming up, there's going to be a large audience of people looking to get a better understanding of Jane Foster and her time as Thor. And as such, they're releasing what looks to be a pretty complete hardcover edition of Jane's time as Valkyrie which is, you know, a a little confusing, I know, because her time as Thor is going to be split between the two Jason Aaron Thor Omnibi plus the War of the Realms. Um, It just gets so fucking confusing trying to follow this sometimes. But, that said, May 31st there's going to be a hardcover collecting the Mighty Thor 702 to 706 Valkyrie Jane Foster 1 through 10, material from Mighty Thor at the Gates of Valhalla and War of the Realms Omega, and that's like a pretty good entrance point to where Jane was before things got
1: double Valkyrie Ah, but why couldn't we just get the big Omni with all the, with the King in the Black and the miniseries that followed it? Oh. I feel exactly
0: the same way. Like, I actually feel like something's kind of like taken from me by not having that presentation because it, yeah. it almost makes it feel like, and this is, you know, if this is a Women in Marvel special, let's just do it. I know I brought it up 15 times in the last couple of weeks and I'm going to bring it up to, my fucking fingers fall off from typing it, but why is Anne Nicenti the only significant writer on Daredevil to not have an omnibus edition at this point? The only female writer?
1: You know, I said the same thing about Doom Patrol with Rachel Pollack which is finally coming out eventually this year. That's
0: one of the things we like first bonded over was like, you know this whole sense of underappreciated female characters, underappreciated female storytellers, and it's perhaps the only like womp womp I have about the incredible run that Jason Aaron has had on Jane Foster and Thor and Valkyrie and her time wielding Mjolnir and Undrarn is that there hasn't been a wealth of female creators attached to the title at the time.
1: Agreed. Agreed. And not until later did we get a lot of female creators attached to Valkyrie with Torin Grombeck and Tamara Von Villain in the preceding series.
0: Now, I'm so glad that you brought up that you have been on like all the runa coverage earlier and you know people say to me like you're good at asgard shit i'm like yeah i'm very good at asgard shit but if somebody was like yeah you think you know valkyrie i'd be like no i think (laughs) nathan knows valkyrie shit (laughs) you can clean your mouth out now like so (laughs) (laughs) i want to know how you feel as like one of the things we bonded over early on as well was our love of defenders and oh yes your love of valkyrie as a classic concept is so turned on its head by by Runa, who feels as though she has always been a part of the Marvel universe, even though she's a direct response to Tessa Thompson being professionally fabulous. Uh, I
1: would, yeah.
0: I would love to get your take on the transformation of this character as someone who has always had this character close to your heart.
1: I'll be honest. At first, I was throwing it with Jane being Valkyrie. Like I always thought it should be Danny. She's the last Valkyrie. She really is. But I got over that quickly when I read Runa's introduction as the character. The whole mystery behind it was was something amazing. It was. So cool to see where she fit in with those classic Valkyrie like Brunhilde and even her interactions with Jane and Danny in the King of Black series and Hildegard too. Oh my God. Yeah. It was cool to see the connection that she had with Mr. Horse. She seemed like a character that came into existence, fully developed. Not like, you know, some characters you have to wait a few years to grow to love. Like Runa like was a character that really tugged at my heart right away just because of the power of the writing and the depth of the continuity that the creators placed on her character and and getting her place in the mythos. Everything fit. Everything made sense. There's so much about early Asgardian Marvel that we don't even know about to this point. That it all made sense in it fit, And it really felt like it was a really interesting story. And I wanted to see more. And I love I love that she's a sapphic character. I love that she, you know, her, the love of her life was a woman. I just, ah, so much I love.
0: And I think one of the things that I have long held in my heart is that the Thor mythos is made more powerful by the strength of its female characters. And that the female characters of Thor are so dynamic that they find themselves in other titles so frequently. You know, it's not just that. Oh, Valkyries in a book. There's several Valkyries. It's yes. a legacy mantle, and there's enough to be a Valkyrie core. Like that's fucking awesome. And we you know, need a Valkyrie could, core. I almost. Oh god, I was like, oh, it could be like a force, but it's V four. No. No no no, <laughs> no, no, no,
1: no, 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 no V force, Nico. No
0: V <laughs> No, 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 no. no. <laughs> but okay, so also. Awesome. Said and done. <laughs> I am so excited to talk about issues six through 10 of Valkyrie Jane Foster with you. I love varied creative teams, but I wonder if maybe the inconsistency that the creative team wound up encountering throughout the book's production ultimately led to some of the difficulties. While Hold that on. first volume had consistency from Al Ewing, Jason Aaron, C. Kafu, Jesus Abertov, and VC's Sabino, there's no three issues in a row. For the rest of the series with the same creators. There, there. Yeah. 6 through 7 see Al Ewing and Jason Aaron's final collaboration on the title with Pere Perez, Jesus Albertov and VC's Sabino filling out the art team. Issue 8 is Jason Aaron and now longtime collaborator Torin Grunbeck. Like Torin Grunbeck has been on so much Jane, like we have been like so, we're we stand. Like, I I, I Damn Torin Grunbeck. Yes. Torin come we don't know enough about you. Please come into our show as you have come into our lives. We huge fans. Uh but that's the final issue to see Art from series regular artist see Kafu and all of the other art is actually credited as guest artist which is interesting you know when you see hmm. guest artist on your final issue <sighs>
1: yeah.
0: right so Jesus Abertov and Joe Sabino fill out the rest of the series but issues 9 and 10 see art from Ramon Rosnas on inks and pencils and I wonder if the general instability for the title maybe threw people off you know when Marvel launches a book, and they're like, ah, this is the thing. And then at the last second, they're like, switch art. Like, I was really thrown that the Marauders annual artist is not going to be the regular artist on Marauders. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's so weird. I don't want to call it inconsistent art, because the art is consistently excellent. Like, really, really excellent. And I think that might be Jesus Abertov doing some breathtaking colors throughout. But how did you feel about the inconsistent art team, yet very consistent quality?
1: Sometimes there's some books where I think the colors matter the most. Like Moon Knight. I don't notice a new penciler as much with Gemma K's Moon Knight Is if Rochelle Rosenberg wasn't doing colors on that book. Like, I think like the colors sometimes make the book. And I didn't notice it as much in this chain book. I did notice, and and I didn't notice the change in the writing credits, so thank you for pointing that out, the difference between the Al Ewing stories with Jason Aaron and the Toronto groundback stories with Jason Aaron, because the last arc really felt a lot more like the Valkyrie that we've come to know and love since then, but art-wise, it wasn't always my favorite Favorite to jump from issue to issue and have that stark difference, especially in this reread that I just did. When you're reading it coming out, maybe you don't always notice it as much, but when you do a quick read through everything, you're like, whoa. That's different,
0: and it's so funny because, like, I feel like that happened uh, with this again. Where in the far past, I was like, "Oh yeah, the art's pretty consistent throughout. Maybe it's even the same artist throughout." Return to the Valk. Nope, <laughs> nope. I somehow remember Kafu doing like the whole series, and that's definitely not the case. But it's a really interesting thing. The way I feel as though Perez's work on issues six and seven, which no strike against the rest of the series but issues six and seven really represent like the high point of the art for me i i I can't get over death is dying and the art there is so incredible and i was so eager to share this story with you because of the implications for krakoa and what it means to kind of the x-men that this even happens how did you feel about death is dying at the hands of the endless cycle of heroes returning
1: okay so the whole story first off let me like jump into it like i was just super psyched that somebody remembered who mannequin was in the first place yes <laughs> i was like fuck yeah dr nap back and then i like reread it. like oh uh, yeah he's a doctor and he's having a relationship with persuasion." that's a little yeah. but the whole idea behind this arc was so amazing and of course it could only be tackled in the pages of valkyrie we've got the green door going on we've got krakoa and the resurrection pods of course death is going to lose a lot of its power it's going to be injured it's going to be sick it's going to be dying and like just the idea of the death of death itself like every time i think i can't be surprised by a marvel cosmic entity then i am again if they had one like you know like what would have happened would we have led into something like the Cancerverse and guardians of the galaxy like like it's just like the implications of the story were huge and this was in jane foster valkyrie like holy hell if this hadn't gone the right way this could have been a huge blow
0: one of my big things that everybody on this show loves to joke about and by joke i mean we all sit here praying is <laughs> the marvel universe is always secretly inching closer to earth x <laughs> (laughs) 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 and so I was like oh this is it
1: this is is the end of death this is it right Marvel's
0: gonna come back and be like put your death in
1: me so you know I got a problem with that like because if you want Mephisto to rip out Dazzler's heart and her to just like lay there in the hospital bed I'll be kind of upset with that
0: no I don't want that to happen I also don't want Deadpool to secretly be Daredevil as a stuntman pretending to vaguely (laughs) be Ghost Rider for 10
1: years (laughs) or for a Nightcrawler to be Velasco or Fyodor to be Mr. Sinister
0: Madrox to be secretly Wendigo.
1: There were some choices made in that series.
0: <laughs> but, you know, the the relief is that that's not where we went just yet. Yes, absolutely. And I am such a big... Is she technically Excalibur, Dr. Faiza? Is she technically Excalibur? Because I don't remember if Faiza has an official code name. but, you know, such a big fan of the character from back in Captain Britain, MI-13. Wow, this is the second time I get to talk about this on this show. That's awesome. The huh. Mighty Medics is such a... A spectacular idea
1: absolutely i think she was excalibur in the death of dr strange x-men black knight one shot so like I- i'm pretty sure Excalibur's her her codename and like yes like this team of medics that they come together like yeah i was like probably the only one who's excited about mannequin but even like scalibur you've got night nurse you've got cardiac this team of medics and super powered medics is just like ah fucking amazing like i almost wish if like if they can't get a valkyrie series to go like i almost which we get like a spinoff of like you know like the medic alert team or whatever you want to call them
0: i would definitely love something that explores this group of characters and you know i would love it if it could involve maybe the current sorcerer supreme but Uh the previous sorcerer supreme's appearance here man there is something about the way ewing and aaron who both have so much experience with working with dr strange so excellently and eloquently step back into the character i found this sequence beguiling.
1: Absolutely. You could tell these authors had a lot of love for all of these characters that they picked. Um, Somebody, either Jason Aaron or Ali Ewing, must have been a secret Alpha Flight fan because they wrote Doctor Net amazingly. Like, holy hell.
0: Doesn't Ewing write Gamma Flight?
1: Ewing writes Gamma Flight, like, overarchingly, but Crystal Fraser that wrote it. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't realize that. That wrote the majority of it, right? But even Gamma Flight doesn't capture old school Alpha Flight as well. But you know what? It's got to be Ali Ewing because Ali Ewing decided to use a lot of the Alpha Flight Characters for Gamma Flight, so it's gotta be Al Ewing. That's the major Alpha Flight thing.
0: And you know, issue seven brought a lot of really interesting ideas. I'm glad that for a two-part arc they didn't stretch out the cardiac's accidental killing of mannequin thing. Though LOL, his goo form is dead, the rest of him is fine, is <laughs> the Jason Aaroniest science I've ever heard, and I'm so here for it. I also thought that showing Sharon as the virus was such an incredible visual that's like like a virophage thing like that's like like the like an actual virus so that yeah. was really cool visuals
1: oh agreed I think my favorite visual in the whole in this whole series that we re- just read was on page 23 of issue seven where you have just death like standing in front of the car that's on fire that unfortunately Jane Foster's ex and child dying just that scene right there like that is so beautifully drawn the colors like everything is rocking on that page
0: you know and that's one of the things that That I found so incredible about this book that even an arc that feels like it's like a fill in had so much weight and power. And perhaps that's why when the series moved to like consecutive minis, it didn't hurt it so much because the series already deftly balanced a sense of realism to its own story beats and to a sense of a bigger picture
1: there i think with the move to minis it really allowed them to create a little bit more of a fleshed out arc whereas within the series itself they kind of rushed through some of the arcs like this six and seven could have been its own like five ten issue miniseries and they could afford a lot more in that i think that the move to minis really helped the series flesh out the characters especially when you introduce Runa and the clean and black mini.
0: and it also doesn't give you a lot of time to dilly dally it means you got to run a tight ship which is why six seven being this two-part arc followed by eight nine and ten i kind of feel in some ways like eight through ten is secretly just an avengers by aaron arc i know that aaron was still writing avengers at this point he had just finished up thor at this point so i don't know it's not that i don't think that this is a worthwhile jane arc because it's a great great valkyrie arc oh man so much of her character is so strong here but this just feels in a positive way like more of aaron's thor If you're less familiar with Aaron's Thor, Nathan, this is a great sense of what you can expect for the majority of it. But if you're more familiar with it, I'd love to get a sense of how you felt about this arc and the fact that it was so filled with Avengers and Asgardians.
1: So I'm like mid-level familiar with Aaron's Thor. Like I have read a few issues I'm introduced to the way he's written, especially Thor as the Allfather. I would say the thing that really struck me the most about especially this first issue, which was very Avengers heavy was the Avengers part seemed unnecessary. They were there for the Aaron comic appeal, which sometimes I love. Sometimes I'm kind of like, ah, you know, like, OK, cool. But that's not the story you're really trying to tell. And I think that it would have served the story a little bit better if it had been allowed to focus a lot more on just the Jane and Thor part of the story. You know, it was cool seeing Mr. Horace Bond with Spider-Man. Uh, who doesn't love to see that? But, you know, I, I did. I need that in the story. And I understand.
0: So, OK, if you were asking me like my least favorite as guardians it's like scourge and tear like i just have no use for either
1: of them same
0: And like, you know, I'm fine with the tear being, you know, a big ball of crap thing. Like my notes literally say, I just (laughs) hate tear, full on just hate tear. And it's fine that he kind of has a purpose here. But, you know, his purpose is kind of so that Jane and Thor can have a face off. Jane and Thor have had a very like dick you down kind of wrestle vibe. It's been very... Very hot, very cool, very playful, very arm-wrestly. They fought once or twice early on, but, you know, for the most part, it's very, yeah, you think you got it? Like, huh. it's very sexy, you know? But this Jane Thor, like, actually, you want to see me put the hammer down <laughs> kind of fight is very different, and I think by having Tear and the Rovik, you know, behind it all, it kind of eased the story. How did you feel about Tear, and then ultimately Thor's place in the narrative? Tyr was a character
1: I didn't know as much about. I, for some reason, always gravitate towards the really strong women Asgardian characters, like, sign me up about Amora, sign me up about the Valkyries. Like, I don't know as much about Tyr. So I was like, this dude's kind of a dick. Like, what the fuck is he doing? Like, that's his brother. Like, oh, I didn't know he had an older brother. Haha, I'm dumb. I was like, okay, like, this dude's a dick. I thought what it did to the Thor narrative, though, is surprising. He's the Allfather now. He's not just Thor. So for Tyr to be able to take control over Thor like that seemed very huge and out of character
0: oh no it definitely does and for the record you're not dumb forgettable dickhead is the complete definition <laughs> of tier. and I keep thinking that especially because the stuff that this rolled into is the king in black stuff I actually think that maybe this was going to be a little bit more about bringing forth the all black and maybe this was going to be that's how you know it was able to control Thor because then you know we, were, we saw all the nullified versions of things were pure corruption and it was of you know some very pure-hearted people so I do agree with you that is a big upgrade for tier now quick question I, I don't know if anybody else noticed this but does one of the covers have Thor in his updated look from the Donnie Kate series but then everywhere else he's in his previous Thor look from the final Jason Aaron series yes
1: that is exactly
0: right oh my Oh my god it's so distracting i thought time must have occurred between issues eight and nine
1: i i think they did i think that when was the covid break for the series because i think the covid break really added a lot of time in the series for it
0: i do believe that that is the case because these were the issues that finished up online
1: that is a good catch because wow yeah exactly always like the last two covers thor's on eight and nine like that is exactly what you're talking about
0: oh my god speaking of distracting i love Loki coming in at the end but if all ultimately Loki hadn't given way to a lot of story in later issues of Valkyrie I would have found this a waste of my time
1: exactly the only reason I bought into it because I was rereading it now having read the latest Valkyrie mini and I was like oh cool this kind of like shows a good layup of their relationship but otherwise it would really not have been something I needed to see Loki distracts from the series like and even even the appearance of Hildegard like that set up a good point for uh Valkyrie the uh, Nolan Black series but for this series itself like I think it introduced too many characters that we didn't really understand the importance of at the time.
0: The only one that I'm going to hand wave it is like Volstag is like legit Jane's best friend like, like legit that's like her yeah. war buddy and like I can't imagine a Jane volume without Volstag. the ultimate resolution just kind of being that when Tear got a hold of Undrawn and you know the white wood had transformed the weapon and he tried stabbing Jane with it and And, you know, she's just like, I'm Valkyrie. That was stupid. You know, like, yeah, that was stupid. And it felt like a very, we have to wrap this up quickly kind of conclusion. I regret that Jane didn't get more time, but all said and done, I I really like the kind of story she went on. And I like that we got Runa. And I wonder if we would have gotten Runa in the way we did, where she got to have so much page time. If Jane Foster Valkyrie, a book called Jane Foster Valkyrie
1: hadn't been canceled. Hmm interesting question i don't think we would have i think if because obviously yes you know runa is obviously trying to capitalize on the tess thompson valkyrie but i think if marvel was really just trying to push that point they would have used the exiles version that they introduced a few years ago like right after her appearance in the movies i i think that the concept of valkyries at least to the readers who are going to connect with valkyries has always been as a team idea except for brunhilda brunhilda just like magically was always solo, but she never really carried a title by herself. She was always a team player.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's been like one shots for solo stories, but there's never been like, look at me. This is my Valkyrie ongoing series. Ain't I Wonder Woman? (laughs) So, now, this is as great a time as any to talk about the one Runa story we have not been a part of, and I want to just say that we are certainly here to honor, respect, and celebrate the coverage that Raven and Andre brought. They had such a terrific perspective as modern, non-ancient Asgardian Black voices that this story kind of highlighted that, you know, yeah, there's definitely some Black people for whom the Black experience... Is not the most present of mind like it isn't for Valkyrie, but that is the exception and should remain the exception in storytelling. And that is certainly nothing that Nathan or I is here to comment on. I'm here to talk about the Valkyrie story. <laughs> so, uh, my question for you is how did you feel about getting a solo Runa story?
1: You know, it really wasn't all that different. The last Valkyrie Mini, the Runa stories, except for at the very end when they merged, were all very solo, and it was cool to see it carried over to a Marvel Voices story. All questions aside about the appropriateness of an inclusion in this particular Voices, like this story was amazing. It was well done. It really captured the character, the essence of the character, to a T. This is the exact same character that I have read in all of her previous appearances. She's got the same heart that she has, and we got more of Mr. Horse in her, which I love this iteration of Mr. Horse, become a lot more fun than he was in the original Valkyrie series.
0: Excuse me, did that pony just talk? (laughs) Man, Nathan, I loved that perspective. The words you just said really affected how I saw this story. When you said its inclusion in this particular volume is perhaps the, the question. This would be excellent in a Thor annual. Like, I don't think Thor annuals should feature Thor. That's a bad use of a Thor annual. I think it should just be all Asgardians all the time. And if this was just like six pages in an Asgardian annual, I would be really happy i would have thought this was a lot of fun a wear dragon uh kind of thick sexy nerd gets naked okay right like a little bit oh, longer yeah. than hair i usually go for but like he made it look so good and like this was a fun story and i you know i think this is the silliest cutest funniest art we've seen runa in it felt like batman Great. the animated series
1: oh <gasps> Yes, it did.
0: And like I I really enjoyed it. I would love more in cuz like I don't know if you had a chance to read but there was a Thor and Loki Guru Hiru series that was a lot of fun and was light and animated and you know had that really fun vibe and like this could really fit in with that. This has that kind of energy. Okay, okay. Now, Nathan, my question for you before we turn things over to our coverage of Women of Marvel is what do you hope for Valkyrie in the future? I know know. know that we've got the upcoming Jane returns to wielding Mjolnir for an arc written by Torin Grunbeck. We have Jane continuing to appear in Avengers because it doesn't look like anybody's stopping Jason Aaron anytime soon. We have the recent and you know this part is not a spoiler because it's the cover but you know we have the Thor girls we have the granddaughters of Thor on the cover of Avengers 4. That's fucking nuts. Like what is your hope for the future of valkyrie and the great ladies
1: of asgard i would love to see jane foster become more of a traditional valkyrie where and and not just like as the the valkyrie namesake which Brunnhilde had before but like as more of a, like an actual traditional valkyrie where she has to lead this team of women warriors i'd love to see her go through a series like fearless defenders where Brunhilde was trying to rebuild the valkyries like that was epic and amazing and like i would love to see that kind of arc for Jane, because I think whereas Brunhilde has her own foibles, I think Jane is perfectly set up and caring enough to be a great and competent leader of a team and a great builder of a group of women that would, you know, serve the function that the Valkyries do and also, you know, just like kick ass and superhero across the Marvel universe.
0: I love it. I love that take. And, you know, until we get those adventures, we have our coverage of Women of Marvel from 2022. You know, if I had one other complaint other than. That these books are not part of the voices line where I feel like they might get a little bit more attention. It's that they are always named the same thing, which occasionally makes navigating to them a little frustrating. Our coverage today includes an introduction from Gail Simone and then storytellers including Preeti Chibber, Anne Molina, Rochelle Rosenberg, Mirka Adolfo, Sume Kesgin, Brittany Peer, Eleonora Carlini, Jordi Belair, Zoe Thorogood, Claire Rowe, Jen Bartel, Charlie. Charlie Jane Anders, Emma Kubert, Elisabetta Domenico, Giada Marchiso, Marguerite Savage, Rihanna Pratchett, Alina Efrova, and Ruth Redmond. We hope you guys enjoy. Oh, oh, how did I? How did I? How could I ever? I'm so sorry. VCs, Ariana Mar, you lettered this whole thing. Oh so my God, how you can't forget I, Ariana. How, I'm the worst, right? So enjoy this next segment, our Women of Marvel coverage. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, you might even like what you see. You can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N.
1: And I'm Nathan. You can find me online at Dazzler IOA at Twitter and Instagram. Mainly Twitter, but Dazzler like in the age of apocalypse.
0: And you can follow the show over on Twitter at X is for podcast. Enjoy.
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to X's for a podcast, the show where we talk about mutants, magic, and the women of Marvel week after week through their many, many titles. I'm Tori, and you can find me at Tori underscore Sheehan on Twitter and at SMTori. That's Tori with an I on Instagram.
3: Hi there, everyone. I'm Jake, they, them pronouns. You can find me planning the downfall of Krakoa over at Omega Sentinel on Twitter. That's OH Mega Sentinel.
4: And that makes me Raven, aka Dame Red Thread. You can find me over Twitter and Instagram and ranting to the sky about everything you know just come over join me sometime
2: well there's a lot to talk about with this issue in particular we open up on this gorgeous gorgeous cover that involves so many amazing characters storm black cat america chavez jubilee i'm guessing that's janet or maybe hope Um, damn it janet (laughs) (laughs) but like can we talk a little bit about the fact that this cover is a bit of a disappointment when it comes to who's in this group
4: yeah oh yeah i had such high hopes seeing that cover i was practically squealing and oh my god i was like yes! And then I opened the cover.
3: Yeah, it was disappointing that Storm was not in this book. I think Storm Mm -hmm. is probably, to my eyes, one of the most prominent women in Marvel comics. And Mm -hmm. to have an issue called Women of Marvel that puts her on the cover, but then she's not anywhere in the book. It's frustrating that there are three women of color on the cover and none of them are in the book. (laughs) Like it feels like a misdirect. Yeah,
4: it really, really, really does. And it's super... Super disappointing because Marvel has put out an issue with and then they put this out and it is by and large, in fact, almost strictly hero
3: wise, cis white women. Yep. And it's it's hard not to read this as like, uh, we're trying to sell more books by putting like X characters on the title because I, I noticed mm-hmm. this during the Phoenix Song Echo miniseries where like there was an issue that had a whole bunch of X-Men on the cover and they didn't mm-hmm. show up. And the last issue had Wolverine on the cover and Wolverine was not. Nowhere in the miniseries. Mm-hmm. Is the strategy to put X characters on these covers because that sells more books? And if so, that seems a little cynical, right?
2: And it also just has the drawback of making people super excited and then getting pissed off that what they wanted on the cover isn't in there.
4: I mean, I understand sometimes you have to do stuff like way in advance and and things change, but to have absolutely zero representation of any of these lovely and amazing women of color, like nowhere featured, not a single one of them. In fact, no women of color period in this book as protagonists or as a hero figure.
3: It's frustrating that that this is their women of Marvel book and they have mm-hmm. really narrowed what the definition for the women they want to work with in this book mm-hmm. is.
4: Apparently six white women. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Yeah like it's, it's almost like oh this is the women of Marvel then what is the default woman in mm-hmm. the world? Mm-hmm. And so I mean personally I enjoyed the introduction by Gail Simone just mm-hmm. to provide yes. me the kind of timeline of how women were brought into the field like where Gail fits into the the timeline and kind of what the next generation looks like you know the list of women and non-binary creators that she that she lists is just like a huge boon to me who's constantly looking for these kinds of creators and now Mm -hmm. I have a whole list where I'm like let me check out what they're up to
4: oh yeah absolutely it was great that we got this forward and this breakdown of more female creators because that definitely gives us a starting point to actually go and look at books and support books that are female-led. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, it's great, too, that sh- she goes and names, you know, Louise Simonson and Devin Grayson and Ascenti, Marie Severn-Joduffy, et cetera, people who came before. And so, yes. you know, you can track mm-hmm. that history, you know, go find what these women were working on and see, you know, the fundamental difference that they were making to the Marvel Universe in the 70s and 80s and, and early 90s. It is a really good history and an important history to recover. And one that goes back even further than Gail Simone is pointing towards but I think for the purposes of like the modern reader it makes a lot of sense to kind of be like this was the era that I was reading these are the women that I was reading and these are the women who influenced me and got me into it absolutely
2: yeah especially even to continue it into other women's characters or stories that empowered you to create your own to see so many many characters so many loves and so many different kind of genres of media represented there really shows like we've come a long way baby (laughs) (laughs) we start off with the four jobs Felicia hated and one she didn't. Personally, I was a little disappointed that this wasn't the classic fanfic trope of five times and then one time they didn't. But mm-hmm. I guess we get four and one because that's plenty <laughs> of black cats. It's like, we weddings at a funeral. Oh, <laughs> all right. I guess I could go with that. I mean, this first page is basically just a setup to kind of show you, I guess, kind of the biggest name that's in here early. Mm-hmm. And so there's not a whole lot to talk about with it. This needed a slightly different
4: ending point, but I understand that they like literally only had a to do it in
2: mm-hmm.
4: so it's it's hard to cut down on the amount of action and have enough handles to actually cover what you need to cover but yeah it's just like oh, I needed a little bit more tension Yeah. so it would have been, I'm just saying it would have been nice to like if we had seen I don't know somebody passing by a window or you know by the door mm, and just mm-hmm. that huh and just like her having to be sneaky instead of just oh she
3: pops up through a floor a panel a
2: hole in the floor yeah <laughs> (laughs) Like, literally.
3: It's very, like, there's a secret passage that goes into (laughs) a hole in the floor in this office, and that seems like a really glaring security error.
4: I'm like, who built your security system that you've got a a secret dungeon that leads from a mansion into an office? (laughs) Who somebody just left out their chemicals and
3: gun?
2: As you do, as you Uh, do.
3: Looks like there's a blueprint there, too. (laughs) Right.
2: I'm like, someone the other day on Tumblr or on Twitter pointed out that like Batgirl's bathroom in one of those has like the tub half in front of a door deadlocked from the wrong side like (laughs) the toilet's in the wrong place like nothing fucking makes sense about it and it's like well we all know if they were architects they wouldn't be in comics I guess (laughs) (laughs) but then it leads us straight into Patty Prue in Real Witches now I know that when I come into these things I don't have the deep you know historical knowledge of characters that the two of you have mm. and so i spent a lot of time being like oh this is someone who's like a character from something or other you know they must be important and then to find out that like no this is just a new person mm-hmm. that we're supposed to get into i was like they have a lot of secrets for someone who has no priors in the, in the <laughs> marvel world right what did you all think of this
4: this is so very like she seems very craft macaroni witch like mm. she <laughs> the instant okay she's got witchcraft 101 i'm like "Mm -hmm. tales of witchcraft i'm like yeah this is a craft macaroni witch it's a baby witch i get it but then also she's got this book about baba yaga i'm like yeah i "Um, noticed that (laughs) "Mm -hmm." baba yaga is a very powerful figure and not one to be fucked with especially in the marvel universe (laughs) right but still i mean i don't recognize her like where the fuck is she from okay i guess this is a new character and so i invested a lot of my emotion a lot of my feelings into this new character that we were supposedly going to be introduced to so i was like okay i'm just gonna roll with this let's do it and then yeah
3: yeah i kind of by page three that's when i was like oh this isn't someone i should know already right this is right. the thing about her family which is pretty vague mm-hmm. is not indicative of like some some supernatural past that mm-hmm. she has it's like she lost her family and it was terribly tragic and she's become, like, like a loner. Mm-hmm. It was an interesting story. I liked the message about how to be a person in a group of people and, like, how to talk about your feelings and how to communicate your concerns. I thought it was interesting how they made it a Scarlet Witch story. <laughs>
4: yeah. Yeah it's almost little to no effort yeah
3: (laughs) she's doing her peloton and then (laughs) suddenly there's despair despair oh god like would this
2: have been a better story if it wasn't scarlet witch if it was this girl suddenly discovering her powers
4: honestly you could have scarlet witch in there absolutely have scarlet witch in there but have this girl discovering her powers and have scarlet witch there as the support Mm -hmm. versus the the recenter, which is where I got annoyed, is that we built this girl, this protagonist in this story, uh, and she's like a woman of color, and all of her friends seem to be women of color as well, but a very wonderfully diverse group, and possibly also diverse in their sexuality. Mm-hmm. So I'm just like, oh my god, this could be amazing. And then no, it was just a recenter to the pretty much cis het white woman. And then yeah. Then she gets defended by this amazing character that you've built up who is turns out to be a woman of color who is a janitor
3: at a gym. Yeah, I did not like that actually.
4: She's cleaning up while Scarlet Witch is working out and clocks despair with a trophy off the wall. I'm like, all these chances you have to do something amazing and great, all this build up and nobody at the editing office or during the
3: writing process suggested maybe something
4: less problematic.
0: Yeah,
3: this is a char- this character should have stayed in the center of this story and not mm-hmm. become a supporting character in her own narrative. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Um, I would have been much more interested if it was about like the group coming together to perform magic on their own with all of them including her. Mm-hmm. It would have been I think a better use of the character. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. I did
3: appreciate the social drama that was happening of someone who, you know, comes into a group of people for the first time that you know you find a group of friends that you really like and you don't necessarily have all of the the skills forged to communicate your feelings and you know something threatens that dynamic a change comes and how do you deal with it and i I liked the the very real kind of i'm getting advice from someone who's been through this Mm -hmm. and can offer like uh, you know a bit of a let me put you on the right path that to me was the best takeaway of the story but all of the action all of the the magic all of the super superhero-ness it was strange how it suddenly became all about wanda mm-hmm.
2: yes yeah. it very much became like a showcase of wanda's abilities and then Wanda is so wise and is going to talk this girl into how she should be behaving and mm-hmm. which also feels very out of character for wanda
3: mm-hmm.
4: it's, especially after the arc we just went through with trial of magneto mm-hmm. i yes. was like Yeah. And the fact that this girl, I just want to feel magical. I just want to be special. I just want to be part of the group. And so Wanda's going to do her a solid by throwing some cheap illusions up from outside a window.
3: I mean, do you think we're going to see this character or like her group ever again? That's why would we? Yeah, (laughs) I mean, there's literally
4: no reason to. Yeah,
2: They can just go back to being normal college and kind of baby witches and we never have to see them again. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, from what we can see, they don't really have their own power beyond card tricks so why mm-hmm. it's not even like there was an awakening
3: of their own mm-hmm. power yeah so it's not like this is uh, a crew for Strange Academy uh, second semester I right. wish
4: I was praying for that you have no idea I, was like, I
2: actually oh thought that's where we were when she was like I'm in college and I have all these books on witchcraft and I was like oh this must be a Strange Academy thing and then mm-hmm. it wasn't
4: no Which no was
1: not at all I was, I was,
4: right I was I was hoping that they would be magically inclined because then Yeah, we could see them possibly in in Doctor Strange or in Strange Academy, or you know, we could we could see them somewhere on the pages again because honestly, they were a very interesting group.
2: Yeah, they were cute. Yeah, they were cute. They
4: were diverse. They they had a very open door kind of policy, like, hey, we get it, you know, you're you're doing your thing, so how about you just have this book, lend it, read it, tell us what you like about it later on if you want. Like, I loved that that they didn't try and force you know a new person into the group they openly offered to bring this new person in and built an actual relationship with them and I'm like yay I don't necessarily see a reason why they would be brought back in unfortunately because the story ultimately was not about them really in any way
2: our next one is the first bad job that black <laughs> cat is involved in which I enjoyed the graphics on yes. the little video game thing it was very cute
3: <laughs> I I love Felicia's costume in that <laughs> yes like those gold epaulettes. Mm. The
2: short hair, the spiked collar. Oh, mm-hmm.
3: Is that a rat tail great. she's got too? Yes, yeah. it's so <laughs> 90s. It's it's amazing. And
2: I love how they're like a few years ago and I'm like, I mean, I guess. <laughs> it's like, oh good, they can't do math either. Yeah, post-pandemic, none of us know what time is. <laughs> yeah, she's getting a USB stick of something or other. Fun- like this was a cute little one page fun story. I don't
4: see how it's a bad Job though because a it looked fun as fuck (laughs) Mm -hmm. and b she's smiling at the end it looks like she had fun
3: I would have loved to see Arcade kind of (laughs) on his on his like loudspeaker his PA like egging her and just like ribbing her and that and having that be a dialogue back and forth because I love that she's in Murder World right now the only reason you would know that is if you're reading the text like if you're just looking at the visuals you're like she's in some kind of like video game dungeon okay Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this could have been a lot of fun if Arcade was in there, like just poking her along the way.
2: This leads us into the Jessica Jones story
3: showing up. Mm.
2: So the character that she is visiting, have we met them before?
3: So this is tricky because he reminds me of one of the characters on the TV show. Mm -hmm. Her neighbor who is someone who struggles with addiction and he's a young man of color Mm -hmm. like she supports him in her friendship with him. Mm -hmm. But it also looks like he's a different character who was in a car accident who she saved. So it seems like it's not the character who i thought it was at first it's it's some random person that she saved from a car
4: yeah that's kind of what confused me too is i i couldn't quite place if he was supposed to be her neighbor or Mm -hmm. if he was supposed to be a a random person new and there for the story
2: i have to admit the little nine panel flashes of her whole life as she's trying to kind of talk her way through to comforting him but also sort of talking to herself i found really poignant and sweet particularly as someone who isn't as familiar with the entire jessica jones arc this is definitely a story that while it's supposed to be about jessica jones supporting this guy it's really more about jessica jones supporting herself which means that it's another story where the character of colors a story arc is kind of side swipe Mm -hmm. for the white woman that it's about was that a car pun (laughs) i
4: mean but you're absolutely right we're supposed to be kind of focused on this black character and the struggles they're going through both with addiction and dealing with mental health issues and trauma Mm -hmm. and instead somehow we get jessica jones recentering his trauma on herself and her trauma yeah it's like
3: uh. <laughs> I think on the one hand, it's important to get to revisit these beats with our heroes that, you know, like she struggles with addiction, she, you know, gets up and gears up for that battle. But you're right, it it's re-centered on her and isn't something that's meant to support this character's experience. I don't, is this, is this guy even named? I-
2: i do not have, sure we don't oh, have it's... a name really no. here
3: yeah I find that very frustrating that that he's not even given a name he's just he's essentially a recovering black man he clearly has been through the ringer you know he's got a story he's got his feelings and he doesn't even get a name I mean no wonder we were confused about who he was
2: yeah <laughs> right and yeah. while I understand that like because this is the women of Marvel issue the women characters are supposed to be centered and we were sort of talking about this before that by making it so that only the characters of color so few that when they seem to be like rescued or just there to push forward the white female characters emotions and journey it's not helpful for anyone and deeply problematic mm-hmm. because this could have been if it was a hero of color if it was a female character that Jessica was coming to visit it might be less so mm-hmm. but without any of that it sort of falls black cat's second bad job also you're right. right these aren't bad jobs in that it seems like she's having fun she gets mm-hmm. what she wants she's not caught right what makes them is are they bad jobs because she's doing bad things she's stealing
4: right but I mean but, that like, wouldn't that wouldn't make black sense black. later on in the climax of her stories
3: well she's always stealing right r- Yeah. R-
4: right and she's always winning like I would have loved to have seen either like a kind of another murder world type scenario where you're like literally having to kick ass all the way through or show jobs where she is just having a string of bad luck she still ends up winning or getting the thing she needs in the end but just every inconvenience like kneeling on a marble kind of bullshit Mm -hmm. (laughs) fuck are you kidding me like (laughs) a rat sets off the alarm instead of her like son of a (laughs) you know like little inconveniences would make them a quote-unquote bad job and kind of funny it would help build it in a different way these just seem like oh oh Okay, well she got the she got the blueprints or the plans or whatever she
3: needed from up that guy's pant leg. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
4: I think so. he
3: <laughs> stole the print, but I also think that she was there to steal the print too, because she, yeah, she leaves with it.
2: She leaves with it, but I think she says she's supposed to be on vacation. It was a relaxing day, checking out some beautiful works of art. She sort of says scoping, but it doesn't seem like she's actively involved in a job. She's just sort of like looking around, and he's the one who does this thing and she's just like well I mean I'm not gonna let you have the print I'll just take (laughs) it home
3: with me it doesn't even seem like it was a job so much as like an opportunity that, that presented itself to her
2: exactly exactly speaking of opportunities Bobby Chase getting into the comic book industry is was a fascinating read of like how it came how not to say easy things were back in the day but how you know chance can get you in the door to something spectacular and lead Mm -hmm. you to being involved in some really groundbreaking
3: work. Yeah, it's incredible to see some of these titles that she was on. She edited the issue where North Star came out. She edited the issue where Hulk's friend died of AIDS. Mm-hmm.
2: It's one of those things where like, if you can count them on one hand, and the further back in time it goes to get to like, filling a whole hand of characters, mm-hmm. the harder it is to remember them, the, the more you're just like, Oh, yeah, I, you know, I know of this,
3: but I don't remember the details. Well, and I, th- I think people tend to forget the stranglehold that the whole comics authority the comics code authority had on the industry mm-hmm. like literally up until the late 80s there was a provision in the comics code that said that homosexuality could not be portrayed in a sympathetic light and it was only in indie comics where you were starting to see with like uh like scott mcleod zott for example is one of the first like indie comics by uh someone who had a name like a big name that had a lesbian character who was like sympathetic and wasn't a villain and wasn't like horrifically queer coded like to be like queer and evil. Mm-hmm. In Marvel, you had awesome characters like Yukio existing, but totally as a subtextual queer character like it simply wasn't allowed while they were still like towing the line with the comics code authority. And once they started to change the code, you know, you started to see some cracks in the firmament. You started to see some, like some real interesting stories and interesting characters who seemed like grounded in the real world. I think that kind of like censorship or self-censorship, even it makes these stories feel less real when you can't talk about real people with, with real things going on in their lives, real
4: emotions. And Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's It's almost like the don't say gay bill. Yeah. The Comics Code Authority didn't stop characters from being queer. It just buried them in the subtext. It did not let us explore them as people who, when we're talking about queer characters, their entire job isn't just, hey! Hey, we're, we're gay, or we're yes. lesbian, or we're bisexual. Let's mm-hmm. go have a you know a fling with this person or that person. It's just watching how they navigate the world in and of themselves, and sometimes more nuanced things happen because they are from a particular background. Just like if you were to have a character who is from a particular country, they are going to have nuances to have the you know like how they're going to act and interact. According to customs and traditions. I mean, look at, and Dr. Doom, like he acts in a very particular way because he is a very particular person with a very particular status. You know, same thing with if you go with the character Wave, she is going to be very different in the way she interacts because she is Filipino and the cultures and traditions and how she was raised is wildly different. So yeah, like there's all this beautiful nuance that could be had, but when you take away the ability to act actually explore those characters for those beautiful nuances you lose out on stories and that's all we really want to see here is beautiful lovely wonderful gorgeous stories to
3: say absolutely I appreciate you making that connection to the don't say gay bill because I think that that's exactly right it's a censorship that quiets us and keeps us from saying like hey uh, real people over here with real issues and real nuances and all you're doing is making it harder to just be in the world and connect the world Agreed. which
2: leads us into our next black cat job which actually seems like it's a bad job right <laughs> uh it does not go well she punches out tuxedo mask which is never <laughs> a good look uh she gets stuck in a hilariously thinly veiled sleep no more place
4: <laughs> what in the eyes wide shut <laughs> Just wake well like for eyes. those for
2: those of you not involved in new york city and the sleep no more phenomenon uh <laughs> sleep no more is a show in new york city that takes place at the mckittrick hotel and hmm. it takes the storyline of macbeth by william shakespeare and puts it through four two or three levels of a hotel where you can either like follow the storyline of it as you follow Macbeth through all of his different scenes or you can wander out on your own and there are just places where the actors will just grab you and put you in things and it's a little bit horror and a little bit immersive theater and then at the end you all get to drink but you're all in these like masks so you're sort of like anonymized while you're there and they liquor you up pretty good so this is very much all of
3: that Well, that sounds like a lot of fun actually oh it's I, I... super
2: fun and it starts at like mid like like, the first show's at 10, there's another show at, like, 12.30. Like, it's, it's middle-of-the-night stuff. You can't catch a matinee. Well,
3: and it seemed like this was really pointing towards something, like, real, mm-hmm. I guess. I love that you said it's called Sleep No More. They call it Wake Forever in this. I had to read through this particular page a few times before I realized that she must beat up the one who says an amuse-bouche, madam, and take her costume, mm-hmm. because she does. She switches from server to, like, that red get-up in one panel. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is definitely a bad job. She she gets bad info. She punches some innocent dude out. I don't think there's any, there's no prize at the end for her. Yeah, I think this was like the first bad job she truthfully had.
4: And it was it was comically bad. Like, this is the kind of bad luck I was kind of talking about. And I'm like, oh no, I punched out. Oh no. Like, she beat up some poor woman for her outfit. She, <laughs> she broke some dude's nose. He's like, this is not what we rehearse. Rehearse, oh shit like it's yeah. it's so good and it's like I met the McPatrick not the McCatrick I'm like oh my oh. I'm like <laughs> oh, I know a few people on this podcast who would have made that typo myself included
3: <laughs> <laughs> and then insult to injury they hired Gambit instead oh
2: oh right. how dare how dare
3: i love the art in this one this is i think this is jen Bartel. Mm-hmm. yes you've got all of these beautiful like saturated colors oh. these backgrounds are really gorgeous mm-hmm. uh, every everyone looks like a distinct person that you can tell apart yeah. just love even with the masks this is this is a very well drawn very well rendered and executed page
4: all of the art in this book i've actually really appreciated because it has so many different styles and types but yeah this the detail and the color in this were just oh i loved them they were absolutely gorgeous
3: i like the panel layout with this one too because with the first four panels they're all kind of at standard angles but then Mm -hmm. you get that punch and that side that like broken side panel that really Mm -hmm. indicates the action sequence there Mm -hmm. before it goes back to like a standard a more standard angled panel layout (laughs) i think that that kind of subtle panel work is really very very well done Hey, everybody.
0: Welcome back. Nico here one more time. And you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N.
5: And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at X, Nate, X, Grey X.
0: And so here's what happened. So sometimes I edit these episodes together in kind of uh, projecting myself through my own chrono-skimming timeline, kind of I am my own older sister kind of way. And the thing of it is we're talking about women of Marvel and we're talking about in the earlier segment, I say, you know, why doesn't Anderson? Senti have her own Daredevil omnibus, and it all kind of came magically due together when I saw that Elektra, Black, White, and Blood, which has become kind of a staple of our coverage here on X's for Podcast, had an Anne story, and so I knew that I needed to come back in and do a little bit more women in Marvel coverage to talk about a woman who has really taken front and center on our show, and I was really excited to do that with TK. You know, TK, you've been on the majority of our Elektra coverage, and I was wondering how you feel about About seeing her dynamic shift, not just in our own coverage, but like sort of she's unavoidable right now.
5: Yeah, she is like the female Wolverine. And it's great because it's still early enough, I feel like, in what is going to be an increasing process that we're seeing new sides of the character every time she shows up and seeing new ways in which, as readers, you have a particular in for Electra that you might not have thought you had if you were like, "Eh, I'm not really into like ninjas. There's so much more. Or to discover about her if you keep reading that i feel like she has a universality that can be exciting for anybody who wants to get into kind of the hell's kitchen corner of comics and
0: yet she's part of a really beautiful tradition of dynamic powerful women in matt murdoch's life and i want to just celebrate a couple of those women for a moment we talk a lot about Elektra, and i'm pretty sure i recently came to near tears talking about matt and natasha's love on air <laughs> and that's pretty me uh but you know that's actually a question TK, did you know that Matt and Natasha were not just a couple, but shared a title for 45 issues where their names and images were both in the logo?
5: I did not really know about the t- I didn't read the title. I was aware of the title, but I don't know anything about it. And I'm just not a Natasha person.
0: I definitely get that. I really, really do. I mean, I'm, I am I kind of grew up a Natasha person because of my, my Daredevil affinity. And, you know, I have a thing for Marvel redheads. I just I can't help myself. And so from like issue, like basically 80 to issue 125 daredevil the man without fear became daredevil and black widow and was a co-starring feature one of the things that's really important to consider about the role that black widow played in matt murdoch's life is that she was a transitionary time for the title where they were experimenting with having a larger female presence in the book and we would of course see that continue with electra coming in later on but you and i talked just a little bit the other day about the first great love of matt murdoch's life karen page who gets erased from a lot of early tellings or gets her importance kind of upgraded and you asked me how i felt about deborah ann wall's performance and i just want to go on record as saying she's the best version of karen page in my opinion like deborah ann wall as tv karen is the pinnacle that all karen page stories should hope to achieve and i wondered what it felt like for you as someone who doesn't come with the karen page has sacks and sacks of baggage that everybody is forced to carry around for her in the comics how did it feel watching deborah ann wall perform this nuanced character on screen
5: well i mean i It's funny that you describe it like that because I feel like by the end of it she does have sacks and sacks of baggage but it's different baggage and it's much more relatable and accessible. The comic goes in some real directions in the 70s and 80s and you kind of are forced to after that when you get into the 90s and the 2000s and on and on to kind of figure out how to not quite erase that stuff because fans are always going to remember it but you really don't want to go diving back Back into it too much, and so with something like the TV show, you really have an opportunity to kind of start fresh with a character, but give them a lot of beats that might be recognizable to fans. And I think that's what Deborah Ann Wall does so well is play somebody who is incredibly vulnerable and incredibly emotional, but still very strong and easy to follow on screen.
0: Now, I could not praise Deborah Ann Wall's performance any better than you just did, and so I just want to you know put the hash marks for ditto and I want to say that Elodie Young like so okay I'm real fucked up and I think Electra is like the perfect woman and like I've said this on air for like 300 episodes but she's literally the perfect woman I can't I just can't she's so everything to me and I just never thought that anybody could perform her with the kind of depth and nuance like it's not a strike against Holly Berry but good luck being all of the things that Storm is to everybody Storm is like legitimately Pantheon levels of complex and I think when you're talking about a character who is, you know, because it's not a knock against Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman is so many things to so many people, but by adding the woman of color factor to Storm, you're giving her such a, a modern importance. And for Storm to come 50 years after Wonder Woman or, you know, 40 years after Wonder Woman and still have that same kind of power, there's something to be said about that kind of dynamic performance that would be required to really transform that role. And so like after a lifetime of Holly Berry as Storms, I just didn't think anybody could cut it as Electra. And I thought Elodie Young played Electra like her heart was on fire, and it made me so happy. How did you feel about Elodie Young's transformational performance as Electra?
5: It was was the thing that I wanted most from the Netflix, you know, Defenders-verse to continue when it was becoming clear that they were going to stop and kind of have a reset because the MCU was going to spread into streaming, and they didn't really want to lose these characters. And the thing that I thought, especially after Defenders, was the Electra series really was was the next thing and it was the thing that I wanted most after all that and it was clearly the thing we were not going to get which was heartbreaking because it is such a good performance it's so nuanced and like we're talking about here it was really the start of something that had so much more to
0: do and grow into one of the things I was really excited about was the idea of seeing this powerful Karen page play out against this incredibly dynamic Electra, and I just feel like we didn't get enough of that because they were so interested in giving Karen a lot of her own storylines which thank god but <laughs> (laughs) Like it meant that she didn't have a lot of sidekick time. And I guess I'd never realized how much I loved Daredevil sidekick time for Daredevil sidekicks. So it's really interesting that I feel like that's one of the things we really lost out on. Because side note, as you and I talked about recently with Ghost Rider, Karen Page and Ghost Rider kind of banged for hot minute in this hot minute in the seventies, and they kind of transferred that on to Punisher because I can't think of anything I'd rather do than Mac on John Barenthal's guard. That that fucking he's so hot.
5: Yeah, he is, but I really do not like netflix marvel punisher
3: i
0: like that karen was on it
5: yeah i mean yeah i guess but the, it's, uh, that that, is, <laughs> that was the not right thing for that character and that strong of an actor to constantly be like i love this psychopath like maybe he i maybe i can fix him it was the most maybe i can fix him moment for somebody who does not do that shit and it was really weird and yes he's super duper hot and so you know i get it but oh boy
0: okay you know what in that regard in that framing that she's not an I can fix him. Like that's that's comic Karen. Comic Karen is let me uh, take away his blindness. But yes, you're right. TV Karen. She's not a fixer. She's a problem fixer. And I really like that distinction.
5: Yeah. I mean, when Matt's being an asshole, she's not going to him being like, let me help. You know, she's get your shit together and I will be there to help you. But if you're spiraling, I'm not just going to sit around and enable.
0: Now, I brought up Karen, Electra, and Natasha because they sort of represent three of the strongest women to affect early Daredevil. One of the things that is certainly definitive of Daredevil is his love interests define his era. This is an unforgettable mark on Daredevil. You know, something someone said one time on our show a million times, and I I I keep I'm, I never want to take anybody's opinion from them, but I don't agree that there are no bad runs of Daredevil. I think there are some awful runs of Daredevil, but I think that there's very few bad Daredevil love interests. And, you know, when we talk about the great hallmarks of Daredevil love interests, it is unbelievable. Believable unbelievable to me that for a book that is around issue 700, Typhoid Mary wasn't introduced until issue 254. That just seems a little impossible. How so? She's just such a part of the Daredevil mythos. It's like when I think about the fact that Deadpool wasn't introduced until like 1990 or so, it's like, wow, that feels really late. Beta Ray Bill in the late 80s, that feels really late. But if you said to me, Spider Gwen was only 12 years ago, I'd be like, oh, sure, I get that. Like, there's things where I feel like if you feel like you always grew up with the character. The character was just always a part of who, like, I grew up with books of magic. So for me, Tim Hunter is a part of my understanding of childhood awakenings into magical fiction. And I grew up in a world where Typhoid Mary was just a mainstay of Daredevil. So many of my Daredevil books either referenced her or contained her. And it was a situation where, you know, she was first created in 1988. So for so many of us, she's just a staple of the Daredevil universe. Is she has been. A thing for you is that Jr. Jr. fucking hair as uh, as a thing for you. So it's funny is everything that you
5: said is true, but I wasn't a daredevil person back in the day. So when I started getting into daredevil through you, the fact that she doesn't come up till much later was actually not a surprise to me or something that I was like particularly shocked by. But yes, she is somebody that since I was five or six years old and started going into comic shops, which was not too long after her first appearance she's somebody just that I associate with Daredevil and yes the J.R.J.R. hair is exactly it but you know that did not surprise me because I wasn't actually into those books till much later.
0: Something that I really appreciate about you and your perspective TK is that you are a connoisseur of process as much as you are an appreciator of destination and in that regard something that has definitely shown through is your love of the editorial process and your love of the behind the scenes that create the books we care so much about and it would be very difficult to talk about Daredevil and Typhoid Mary and especially the story we're here to talk about today Split from Electra Black and White number three without talking about Anne Nesenti the writer of that story one of the longest running writers on Daredevil and editors on the X titles so I have to imagine you're probably most familiar with Anne Nesenti from her time on X-Men
5: yes that is absolutely correct
0: so for people who are less familiar with her time outside of the X books where she worked tirelessly as one of the editors on Chris Claremont's tenure on Uncanny X-Men. and Ascenti is probably best known for her time on Daredevil where she wrote issues 236, 238 to 245, 247 to 257, and 259 to 291. She would also go on to write stories like Marvel Holiday Special 1992's The Wrapped Lamb as well as returning to the title many years later in specials like Daredevil Black and White as well as Daredevil number 500 for a short story called Three Jackets. Now, I actually passed along the Daredevil Black and White story to you a little bit earlier, TK. I was kind of surprised that more people haven't said before this whole Black, White, and Red craze, there was this Black and White special from Daredevil. Was it surprising to you to see this sort of boutique presentation from like a decade ago at this point? So yes, it
5: was. And I actually did not look close enough when I first pulled it up. And I thought it was actually something that came out much earlier. And I was like, oh, so maybe like Black, White, and Red is kind of like... Like just a reference to the fact that they did this one thing a while ago and now they're pulling it back. And it wasn't until I got to the Nasenti story and she mentions iPod earbuds <laughs> that I was like, oh, so this is like, this can't be that old at all. And then it kind of flipped my understanding of the whole thing. But um, yeah, I mean, like the, the first thing you immediately think is like, oh, the idea of a story based on a beloved character that only uses black and white or the evolution of that black, white, red.
0: And, you know, I really love that special because I've made it very clear that if I were a summoner, in Final Fantasy X uh, because, you know, I think we can all agree that in my heart of hearts, all I've ever wanted to be in this world is Lady Yuna, right? So if I had my own personal Aeon, it would be Peter Milligan. And that's just kind of like a statement of fact that I'm unwilling to back down on. And his story in this Daredevil one shot, I remember being like, it was like a lifetime dream come true. And so I'm very positive on this story as well. And just to make an interesting connection, Pete Milligan's inclusion in Daredevil Black and White is fascinating because Pete Milligan doesn't have much of a relationship with Daredevil the way he has a relationship with Electra, as he would write a good portion of Electra's second solo volume. However, Anne Nesenti would not go on to write Electra until this issue. This is Anne Nesenti's first major foray into Electra, and she's going to follow it up later this month with Electra number 100, with a contributing story there. So it's just really fascinating to see this woman who shaped a man's narrative finally get a chance to put her imprint on one of the women that she so deserves to affect
5: yeah it was really funny when you sent me those notes i almost messaged you and said do you have something wrong because that can't be this can't be the first time and then going into electro 100 the second time that she's writing this character i was like nico doesn't get this stuff wrong so this is absolutely right and that is insane to me
0: i'm willing to believe that there's a short story or a marvel comics presents somewhere along the way that i've missed but you know the fact that i'm very anal about being aware of the number of issues that have contained a lecturer's name in sort of a Grant Morrison King mob Gnostic kind of way is really, you know, she's just Anne Nesenti is part of why I never understood the way I kind of got Huxtable here where because I grew up in a world where Chris Claremont loved queers and Anne Nesenti was my daredevil goddess and Louise Simonson was my X-Men goddess and I just kind of thought it was like, oh, there's Chris Claremont and Louise Simonson on X-Men and there's Frank Miller and Anne Nesenti on daredevil and like i never understood that there wasn't just always a woman for every man in comics because as a kid i saw this woman's name everywhere and i just worshipped her and like i still do and i think her daredevil run stands the test of time is like one of the most self-aware and important critically that i can think of and it's just so crazy that because so often women aren't given the priority to write what they want that i feel and you know under that gentleman's agreement that kept Frank Miller in charge of Electra the entire time and Nesenti was on Electra, right? That's that's literally the period of time. That is when the Gentleman Agreement was. It just sucks. It really sucks because it definitely, number one, lessens my love of Frank Miller significantly. But number two, it just makes me wonder, what if we had let Anne Nesenti be Anne Nesenti and not let her stand in Frank Miller's shadow for so long? Who knows what we could have had?
5: It's definitely a loss in terms of an amazing contributor to comic books and what they could have done much much earlier, but it also for, as far as characters go, this being kind of a new come-on point for people for Electra, who is a character who has been kind of just whatever men want her to be in comics for the last like 20 30 years i feel like now she's really starting to be somebody that a lot of different people can write in like i said really new and identifiable and accessible ways so there's an exciting possibility for the future that i feel like if this timeline were different and different people were writing her we might have lost that for electra right now
0: i agree because you know thinking over my notes and nesenti writing electra for the first time in 2022 puts her in the first 10 women to write electra Yeah. devastated by that fact mind-boggling but so kind of back to the focus point of why i brought up so many side pieces of the incredible annescenti's bibliography is because i do just want to touch on how fucking cool typhoid fucking mary is (laughs) if you're not reading daredevil right now typhoid mary did the coolest goddamn thing in the history of comics in the final arc of daredevil's last run i have never read anything that exciting in my life first of all zadarsky has turned daredevil on its head a thousand ways but the fact that he keeps finding ways to Reinvent turning something on its head. I didn't know there was something more upside down than upside down, and I am like, I'm such a big Typhoid Mary fanboy. Like in general, I'm a huge JRJR person. So like, I'm a JRJR person. I'm an andesenti person. I'm a daredevil person. Like, there's nothing about Typhoid Mary that isn't so me. But then she's a mutant.
5: Yeah, I mean, I am only now a Daredevil person, and this is part of the reason why, like, getting into the Zdarsky run and what happens with Typhoid Mary, who I have loved, again, because of J.R.J.R., and because, you know, any mutant gets a pass in my book. I'm always interested in what they're into. So if you tell me a really good random mutant story for somebody who's not, you know, with the X-Men or on Krakoa or whatever's happening, I'm going to freak out and definitely did in this run.
0: And I just want to mention that many people might not realize that Ed Nesenti has had a beautiful body of work working on the incredible typhoid mary now so this is one of those things where like i i'm just gonna do it one more time i'm really feeling like there's about to be a hole in my cheek and i'm gonna have to fight a flesh-eating bacteria by getting a lot of people to masturbate at the same time or something because inexplicably i find myself talking about marvel comics presents again today And Nesenti continued her amazing Typhoid Mary stories after she left the pages of Daredevil over in the pages of Marvel Comics Presents in a number of those Wolverine Typhoid Mary stories I mentioned last episode. And Nesenti would go on to write, Marvel Comics Presents 109 to 116, 123 to 130, and 150 to 151, which is sort of like a famous battle of the sexes Typhoid Mary versus Wolverine story that gets reprinted with great applause. She also contributed a a two-part story to Spectacular Spider-Man, numbers 213 to 240 as well as a story to girl comics number three. Marvel has been trying to show initiative with women in comics for a, a number of years now and I only wish it wasn't still trying to show initiative sometimes. You know, it's women are such a huge part of comic readership and comic fandom and, you know, any woman who listens to this show, you got a spot, you want to pull up, grab a mic. Like, it's just women are a part of comics. So, let's just keep celebrating them. And, of course, Typhoid Mary did have her own four part miniseries written by Anne Nesenti in the 90s Typhoid 1 through 4. Now, so when I say that Typhoid Mary is real buddy-buddy with the mutants, I mean, she's real buddy-buddy with the mutants. She had 10 issues where she was known as Mutant Zero in the pages of Avengers The Initiative, which saw early work by Stefano Caselli, who also has very unforgettable hair. It's a very different kind of pasta hair, but it's still a very pasta-y hair, you know? And then she would go on to appear in six issues of the self-titled X-Men series that was very Who Run the World Girls X-Men, right? And in two issues of Christina Strange Gen X.
5: Yeah, she's not somebody we think about a lot but she is weirdly still important to, I mean, mostly antagonism for the X-Men, but you know, she's there.
0: She's there. And you know who else she is very antagonistic of? My precious Wade. She is constantly getting up to no good with my precious Wade. So I find myself unable to avoid Typhoid Mary at all costs. Thank you all for indulging me a little celebrating the women of Daredevil at Marvel in this special Women of Marvel, Marvel Fanfare episode. I just, you know, grew up a pretty big comic are for women and kind of guy and so like I just really love getting opportunities to talk about how great it is so we're here today to talk about Electra Black White and Blood Split by Anne Nicenti with Federico Sabatini on art and Matteo Iaconi on color art and I was fucking not ready for hyper manga Electra and now it's all I can think of yeah that is probably the best frame of mind to go into this with and and what to want coming out of it. This story does fit into canon and is even referenced at the bottom of the page. Editorial note, this story takes place after the flashback events in Daredevil 168. I want to highlight that it's so cool that Ann Nesenti is a master of Daredevil coming on to tell this story because that means she is so familiar with the sort of canon that fits into these characters. She's studied it, so even if she maybe didn't write any famous Elektra stories prior to this, she definitely knows the material inside and out. Now, for me, the story did have a little bit of a paint-by-numbers feel, but that definitely isn't a strike against it, especially in a character whose backstory is so underdeveloped. How did you feel about this sort of gotta break out of the institution trope for Elektra? So I would
5: say not paint-by-numbers, but procedural, where like from page one, you know... know on page one she's like okay i'm in this situation i've got to figure it out you know that she's going to you know that what we are going to see is that she is going to get herself out of this institution the fact that there is no question that you know like the plot and whether or not she actually does it is not in question does not lessen one's enjoyment much in the same way that like with any procedural cop show you know what's going to happen beat by beat you can tell immediately if it's going to be one that they solve or one that you know goes off the rails the enjoyment is in the journey and this is a good journey.
0: And it's so much about understanding how to piece together the journey for this character. There isn't a whole lot that I feel comfortable saying that at this point in Elektra's backstory, you can insert that would dynamically change her character that wouldn't cause me to reconsider other events. It's one of the things that we've long held about Wolverine's origin. When the greatness of the mystery is that it's so unsolvable, solving it is really frustrating. And when the thing that makes Elektra Electra's past so beautiful is the fogginess of the glass. If you wipe away the fog and you make it too clear, some of that illusion falls away. And I found this story keeping Electra in a fun-loving... I mean, like, literally, she's enjoying herself. That's kind of the art of this. Electra really likes the fight. And I found the idea that she's always ready for the fight a really important element of her character. And Nesenti didn't just come in to say... Let's write some Electra. She said, I want to write an Electra story that shows that she's not born of tragedy, but rather prepared of necessity. And I think that was a really important element to getting her character right.
5: Yeah, I think when you talk about stories that become really central to a character's background, this is not going to be one of them. But the point of the story is not like I've now revealed something really important in the fact that Electra is in an institution. This is, you know, a bad Friday for her. And we're not seeing a story that is meant to to tell us something completely new. We're seeing a story that is showing us a side of Electra we might not have considered.
0: I agree. And the fact that they don't concern themselves with putting in any real narrative of Daredevil, I think it's really significant, right? Um, and the idea that this story can piece together two of these women that we have so hungrily discussed this last few minutes, you know, it's not Electra teaming up with a man. to It's not Electra secretly finds Frank Castle on the streets of New York back in the 70s, and the two of them shoot him up. It's specifically Elektra teams up with another young woman. To add the layer that it's Mary, that it's this woman we just celebrated for the last 20 minutes, creates a dynamic addition to how this fits into the Daredevil canon. But the fact that alone, that it's Elektra teaming up with another woman, would have been enough. But then Anasenti goes and makes it even better.
5: Yeah, I mean... Again, it's not something that I think is going to ever be really central. Nobody's ever going to say like the fact that they were in an institution together is one of the most important things about these two characters, or it's going to be a central plot beat at the end of Devil's Reign. But it's really cool. It's really like plausible for Marvel Universe stuff. And these are two characters that we kind of should see together in little ways throughout their lives because they are so connected, even if they don't necessarily know it.
0: And there's something really dynamic in the idea of seeing Mary in in a sort of secondary role here without removing her agency. Something I find very frustrating is that Mary does tend to jump from like Matt to Wilson and I don't need that. I really need Mary to get to be her own woman and self-possessed. So seeing her here, there's even like an element that I love from the end where she's holding the, uh, the shield and she's behind it that, you know, it has nothing to do with anything, but there's sort of even a, a visual element of she's hiding Hiding behind something that I find really very much who Mary is. This manages to tie into who Mary is, it manages to tie into who Elektra is, and yet at no point did I feel that this sacrificed believability, like you said, yeah, they should just sort of intersect throughout their history. I'm going to choose to believe that Electra covered in blood at the bottom is just like a cute nod, and not that like, this is the origin of the red costume. So for my own sake, but yeah, I just really thought everything about this story fired.
5: Yeah, and I mean, one of the of the really interesting thing's about Mary is you look at any Mary story and wonder who you're getting not just in terms of like dissociative identity disorder what personalities you're seeing but what state she's going to be in what her motivations are going to be there it's always up in the air and you can never be sure even when you're deep into a story you can never be sure that things aren't going to change on a dime and one of the things that made this story really interesting is it maintained that tension the entire time of not really being sure who this Mary was, where it is in her personal timeline, and then where she's going to go from here. And it is kind of just at the very end that you see a shot of her that is you would recognize as being Typhoid Mary as you know her later on and by JRJR, but it's it's nascent. It's just the beginning of that. And you, I think, see here that who we recognize her as from the start of her run, this is really before that, and she's going to evolve into that person over time, which is Something I find very exciting to read.
0: I agree completely. You know, the first time I read this, I read it as a young woman named Mary because, you know, so many stories we've had lately, like Devil's Reign X Men, Electra just has a young female companion. In Electra over in the pages of Daredevil, she just has a young female companion. You know, the Jennifer Garner movie, she had a young female (laughs) companion. So it's just kind of a thing. You know, I think the thing that makes this story great is if you put this in an Electra volume as an added bit of backstory it would fit great if you put this in a typhoid mary volume as a bit of added backstory it would work great if you put this in the Zadarski run specifically that last volume where the two of them fought side by side it would work great there's just about nowhere that this story doesn't improve the quality of the characters involved
5: no and it's an amazing thing to refer back to at some point in the future it just gives me so much hope that we would see them together again possibly referencing the fact that they've had
0: each other's back i hope that if they do finally move forward on an Entity Daredevil omnibus, this finds its way into it. Oh, absolutely. Guys, we love making this show for you three times a week every week. That's Magic Mondays, X-Men X Wednesdays, and Marvel Fanfare Fridays, though I know that those Magic Mondays sometimes turn into like Wolverine overflow, right? And um, yeah, it's gonna do it. It's Monday. It's good. X-Deaths. Just be ready for it, right? But until then, guys, I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O- A-C-T-I-O-N. That's and I'm TK, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at
5: XNateXGreyX. X.
0: Don't forget to look up the show over at X's for podcast. And until then, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Celebrate women every time you do anything, not just when Marvel drops a Women of Marvel special. And we'll see ya.
5: Bye.